you know, I think psychedelics and ketamine particularly are like great tools for exploring consciousness. Um, and, you know, ketamine is anesthetic, so it numbs the body and it kind of takes the body offline. And when the body's taken offline, who are you? You know, you're not a body. You're not, you're not, your experience isn't informed by information coming through the five senses. Hi, welcome to Undefined. I am very excited to publish my interview with Dr. Eric Sinknecht. He is a psychologist who started his own therapy clinic that focuses on ketamine-assisted therapy to help with trauma and stress recovery. And the clinic is called Polaris Insight Center. It's in San Francisco. And he is also a MAPS recommended therapist, or I guess a psychedelic He helps with psychedelic integration. MAPS is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And that organization is sort of the leader in the psychedelic therapy space when it comes to organizing and conducting the various studies to see how psychedelics help with trauma, recovery, PTSD, depression, anxiety, etc. Um, I know Johns Hopkins also has run some studies as well as some other, um, you know, major research institutes. And we have a very interesting conversation. We talk about his inspiration for his work with ketamine, non-ordinary states of consciousness, uh, starting his own therapy center, and a little bit about how it has helped people. We also talk about, as a therapist, how he holds space, but also protects his own energy, what made him want to become a psychologist, and sort of his background. He's also a twin, so we have some interesting twin-related conversations. And overall, I loved this conversation. I found it fascinating. I think his work is fascinating. Um, I've never participated in this type of work, like ketamine therapy, but I think it's very promising in terms of helping people who are struggling with depression and anxiety, PTSD, and other forms of trauma. And I think this space is just fascinating. I mean, we rely so much on pharmaceutical drugs, and I think that this is one promising new way to treat these uh, conditions. And it's interesting because it really stopped The research stopped in the 60s, really with Nixon and the start of the drug war. So there was all this research and promising research that was going on with psychedelics up until the 60s, and then it just completely halted. The research stopped, and then now it's just starting to get back going again. And ketamine is the only one that is fully legal right now for therapeutic purposes, and psilocybin, which is what's in mushrooms, that was just legalized in Oregon, and I'm sure other states will follow. So it'll be really interesting to see what's coming in the next 5, 10, 15 years. But I hope that you enjoy my interview with Dr. Sinknecht. He also prefers Eric. And I will talk to you at the end. Thank you so much for agreeing to let me interview you. I'm really excited about this. You're, you're welcome. Yeah, I'm really happy to, to be here and be a part of your podcast, have a conversation. I guess I'll start by I'd love to hear about what a defining moment in your life was, like any big choices, big mistakes, leaps of faith, just like big growth moments. The moment that comes to mind, it was after college and I was really didn't know what I wanted to do and was kind of uh, went for a long road trip around the country and settled for some time in Boulder, Colorado, and then got restless and drove out to the West Coast and stayed in San Francisco for a bit and was dreaming of living there. But at the time, it was, you know, the dot-com boom, and there was, like, no places available, <laughs> and I, I didn't have the, you know, finances to, to be able to do that in a sustainable way. And so I kept driving and <laughs> drove around and eventually ended back in my hometown, Chattanooga, Tennessee. And, you know, it was kind of scratching my head like, okay, you know, like what's the next step? And 
I come from a long line of doctors and medical doctors. And, uh, you know, I kind of decided to, to kind of go through pre-med classes and, and go the medical school route. This was like before college? This was after college. Oh, after college. Okay. Yeah. I had a degree in philosophy and um, <laughs> couldn't do a lot with that. I was working at a coffee shop trying to figure out my life. And so, yeah, I went through, I went, I took, took some pre-med classes and the more and more I kind of studied medicine, I kind of realized it was not in fully full alignment with, with who I was and, and what I wanted to do, but I did love, I love chemistry. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I really got into chemistry, organic chemistry, and I was good at it. And, you know, that was something that was really exciting for me, but the people in my classes <laughs> were very type A and, you know, very, very, very smart. And I felt like a lack of connection and uh, with them uh, and resonance with them. And so I also just decided to take a psychology of religion course at the time, just because that's something I was more interested in. And the teacher happened to be a guy named Ralph Hood Jr., who spent his life studying uh, non-ordinary states of consciousness and writing results and doing studies and uh, writing papers. And he actually developed the M scale, the mysticism scale, to study, to measure uh, whether someone had a mystical experience. Oh, interesting. That scale was also used by, I think it was used by Walter Ponky in the Good Friday Experiment. Mm -hmm. And it was also used by Rick Doblin in his work and also Roland Griffiths at John Hopkins at some of, in some of his studies. So that was kind of, to get to your question, that was the moment that I kind of meeting him, being in his classes and realizing that he made a career out of really studying the mystical experience in a serious way. And and that he he was very open-minded to psychedelics and yeah non-ordinary states of consciousness and he he was lecturing at the time at CIIS California Institute of Integral Studies which I know is where you went to get your graduate degree exactly yeah and so that was kind of the bridge to CIIS for me and i just there was a moment when i was like you know <laughs> I don't know what this is going to lead, but I really feel this is very, very much in alignment with like my deepest held values. Interesting. And I want to, and you know, so he kind of recommended that I apply to CIS and I did and, and got in and that was, yeah, that was the start of my graduate school. And you applied, you went through their PsyD program. I went through their PsyD program. Exactly. What do you think about his, him studying the mystical experience? Like what resonated? Because not a lot of people think about those questions. Yeah, I think from a very young age, my dad was Episcopalian and during my childhood and my mom was kind of a free spirit, kind of a, a mystic in her own right, not, not really ascribing any formal religion, but really loving, you know, Rumi and Hafiz and... Alan Watts and, and, um, and so, you know, I was kind of quite influenced by her. I, you know, we'd go to Sunday school with my dad and my brother every Sunday for, for years. And I never, I never liked it. I never felt that it was resonant. And, you know, when I went to this high school, Christian high school, all, all guys, uh, all, all male, all men for um, six years. Oh, wow. And they had like chapel every morning and like evangelists would come and speak to the <laughs> student body. And there was like this young life uh, Christian student group. And they tried to recruit me at one point. And, you know, at that point I was like, the guy approached me, it was like seventh or eighth grade. He was like, you know, we have this group and then we have lots of like, parties and there's girls there and, you know, lots of good food and pizza nights. And he was, you know, trying to, trying to kind of get me 
interested and I was interested. It sounded great. But I, I said, well, but I don't really believe in Christian principles. I don't really believe that like Jesus died for our sins. And, you know, you have to believe that to, to get to heaven. And he was like, well, that's, that's kind of an important uh, <laughs> thing to, to kind of believe. And, and so, but, yeah, no, I just, that, that moment stands out as like, I kind of knew uh, who I was in a way back then and, and what, you know, I was kind of skeptical back then of like these formal religions and um, yeah, with like a strict structure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I resisted that from a very young age. And so I think, and then, you know, in, in when I was 18, I had a, um, had a mystical experience and that was, catalyzed with a psychedelic substance yeah in a a really safe supportive set and setting it was actually at my home were you alone or were you with other people who were also experiencing it i was lucky that my my mother was very open to using psychedelic medicines in a good way in a in a a conscious way with preparation that's incredible yeah, I, I was feel very blessed to have been in, in a household that kind of supported that. Totally. What do you think made her so open? Were her parents open? Her parents were, were pretty traditional, actually, pretty conservative. But she, I think she was, she rebelled against tradition in her own ways. I think she just was a very kind of fiery spirit in a way yeah. that she kind of, had a mind of her own and and wasn't easily influenced by trends. <laughs> <laughs> what about your dad? My dad, I think of as kind of being a little more traditional, but he's very open-minded as well and very liberal. Yeah. He's, you know, a member of the ACLU and and, and he understood my kind of disillusionment with Christianity and right. and um and so yeah, I kind of had support there. That's so awesome. And also, I, you grew up in Tennessee, right? Yeah, Chattanooga, Tennessee. Yeah, so that, I mean, I'm sure a lot of your community was not supportive of that. No, no. How, we were how definitely... did your parents reconcile that? <laughs> it's a good question. Yeah, we kind of like, yeah, we're very kind of not mainstream. and. I mean, it's interesting to think about like how that was modeled for you to sort of go against the grain in a sense, because your family made that okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, my parents just really valued questioning and critical thinking. They saw how twisted the world was around them and they kind of felt like, you know, we can keep on doing the same thing over and over again, but we're not going to kind of get anywhere as a society. We really need people to think outside the box, think creatively, do new new things. So that was kind of the spirit of my upbringing and, and, and then, you know, my schooling. But, you know, I, I will have to say that, you know, during high school, I was quite, I was a very shy boy and didn't really, I had a, I had a very small group of friends, but I didn't feel like I fit in hmm. with my peers. I got bullied a lot in high school. I would say that's kind of the source of my trauma is, right. you know, being bullied by my peers, being bullied by teachers. Was it because, like, do you think it was just because you were, you know, different and your family was different and non-conforming, I should say? Maybe, maybe that was a factor, but actually I think the, the more apparent factor of that was that my brother and I are twins. Okay. And we were different, uh, you know, in, in high school, we were, you know, um, you know, called gay and homosexual a lot. And uh, just, you know, we were, we kind of, I think at that time when people in their inform in in one's formative years, when you're developing an identity unique and distinct from your parents and from even the idea of having a twin and being like someone else was kind of threatening at some level to people. Totally. We're Um, identical. We're identical. Yeah, we looked very, very much alike at that age. I'm sure. I babysat identical twin boys when I was in college, and they were just starting to learn that they could trick people. Right. 
and like pretend to be each other. <laughs> well, that's another thing, Marissa, that twins have, you know, the, the, the history of twinship and, and twins in society is, you know, there's a there's certain suspicion around twins. Yeah, like, are they going to trick me? Are they going to? And so, yeah, that, that in maybe more of like the collective unconscious archetypal level of experience that 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 was kind of there as well kind right. of informing like trust almost distrust yeah on the other side we were kind of special too and so some people really were drawn to us and you know really wanted to be around us and so you know there was kind of this double-edged sword yeah totally how do you feel like you were impacted by like I'm thinking about, you know, so it must have been so easy to sort of mold your identities together, but then it probably was hard to create your own identity separate and apart from your twin. Yeah, exactly. This is what I wrote my dissertation on, actually. The special development of twins distinct from singletons. Right. And how, you know, there's this idea of like the double double individuation. Not only does the twin have to individuate from the, the mother, Mm -hmm. to form identity, but also they have to individuate from the twin as well. Right. For Jason and I, because we were so close, it was uh, particularly hard. We basically, you know, the way I think about it is we developed our identities later in life than, than other people, our separate identities. And also, like, you guys were kind of going through this collective trauma together. Exactly. Yeah. Which probably made it harder to develop a separate identity. That's that's a good point. You know, we, we kind of we bonded together even closer in opposition to the forces that were kind of bearing down on us. Right. Because it was like a defense mechanism. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And also a blessing that you guys had each other. It was a good thing that we had each other and we're still close to this day. And it's really great that he also does psychedelic therapy. Oh, interesting. So both of you guys do similar work. We both do similar work. Yeah, he's outside of Boulder and he works at a clinic in Fort Collins and I'm here in San Francisco. Very cool. And I guess that's a good segue. I'd love for you to just give sort of like an overview of your work and the center that you founded. So it was in 2015 or so that I got involved with MAPS as an adherence rater on the phase two clinical trials with MDMA psychotherapy for PTSD. What was your role in it? Um, I was an adherence rater at the time. So I was watching videos of therapists providing MDMA therapy um, okay. to, to participants in the study and kind of ensuring that they kind of rating them on how closely they adhered to the treatment criteria in the, in the manual. Oh, interesting. The manual was written by Michael Mithoffer and Annie Mithoffer and some people at MAPS, uh, Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And it was based a lot and a large part on Stanislav Grof's work providing LSD psychotherapy right. back in the 60s and 70s. Right, which was shut down by... Which was shut down, then, exactly. I think, with the drug war. Yeah, 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 exactly. With the drug war, I don't know exact date that LSD was made illegal. I think 1970 or 1972 or something like that. But uh, yeah, after that, you know, all research and all use in therapy was shut down. Right. Before that, you know, there was a lot of interest. There was papers being written. There were conferences happening and it was like, you know, considered you know, LSD was considered, you know, this kind of miracle drug that could potentially in the right set and setting be, you know, one of the most effective treatments we, we had for, you know, mental health, totally mental health issues, depression, trauma. So the manual was written based on Groff's work. And, you know, so my role was to basically kind of make sure that they were, you know, adhering to the, the manual principles and that, the adherence rating work still is ongoing and now we're in phase three of the study, but um, you know, that's an important kind of validity consistency uh, piece of the study. Right. Which does that help it? And I'm, you know, sort of, unf I am totally unfamiliar with the whole process of studies, but does that help it get approved eventually is like to show that, 
I guess it, it validates the, the method, right? And it makes the results more legitimate if you can show that everybody, you know, giving out the treatment is following a certain criteria. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it validates the method. I think it's a good way to, to think about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just another extra piece, you know, I, you know, credit to Rick Doblin and all of the people that have been working on this study for so long, Michael Mithoffer and just, yeah, they really thought through it and they, they really, uh, laid out a good plan for, uh, you know, a really solid study. Um, and, um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very well thought out, uh, structure and plan yeah. and um so was that sort of your intro into bringing psychedelics into your work yeah so that was kind of um that's kind of where it started and then you know i had an opportunity to to apply for the mdma training mm-hmm. um maybe 19, uh, 2016 and and that's to be trained as a facilitator as a facilitator exactly okay. as a therapist on the study and, um, yeah, we went through the training and met some dear friends of mine who are still, uh, we're, we're all quite close. And, um, I met, you know, the, the Veronica Gold and Harvey Schwartz and Greg Wells and Silver Quavedo, uh, there through the MAPS training. And then, you know, we, we really wanted to, you know, from the conversations during the training and afterward, we really wanted to be able to do psychedelic medicine now and make it more accessible to people. And, um, that led to us forming, uh, co you know, founding Polaris Insight Center in 2018, oh, wow. uh, where we could use ketamine, uh, which is a legal, um, substance uh that is not a psychedelic in its own right it's an it's a dissociative anesthetic right but uh at high enough doses uh it does have psychedelic properties interesting and um and so we were really interested in getting more training on that so we we uh kind of were looking around and we realized you know phil wolfson's phil wolfson and jelaine andries were doing this work with ketamine and offering training. And so we, we kind of enrolled in their training and, um, got, you know, had, were able to actually have an experience with ketamine, um, through the training and, uh, realize, wow, this is, um, an incredible medicine that, um, can elicit non-ordinary states of consciousness that can really, uh, uh, lead to true, truly healing experiences for people and it's legal and we can, you know, we can can offer this now. And, um, how is it, um, transformative for you personally? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm just thinking back on my experience in, in, uh, the training with Phil Wolfson, Jelaine Andrews and, um, it was an incredible weekend. And I remember some of the, um, you know, I had the, this experience of like spaciousness of mind, uh, some, some distance from my own thoughts and beliefs and conditioning, Mm -hmm. uh, an ability to kind of see it from the outside and get perspective on it. Interesting. Um, and to realize that I am not my thoughts. I'm not my beliefs. Uh, I'm kind of much vaster than that. Right. Which is sort Um, of the something similar with just, you know, mindfulness meditation, but I would imagine that a ketamine experience gets you there quicker. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's very similar. Um, I I have some experience with meditation and meditation retreats, um, but I've, you know, heard people who are longtime meditators really, and then they go through a ketamine experience and they, they, they see very clearly that they're very similar states. It's a kind of, it's a meta, you know, for lack of a better word, a meditative state of consciousness right? where you're more receptive, you're less, um, you, you're less in your calculative analytical mind. You're open to new experience. You're open to adventure. Right. Um, 
able to be curious. And, you know, the ketamine just really supports all of those, um, you know, that whole orientation of, of, of allowing the experience to unfold moment to moment without needing to have a plan or understand like where this is going or what, what is the outcome right. and just be, be more present, you know, here and now. Do you think there was some, something that shifted after that experience, like a decision you were trying to make or some challenge you were going through that after that experience, it made it more clear, like you had more clarity or was it just this overall, um, almost like your the lenses that you were looking through were changed or cleaned or something like that? It's a good question, Marissa. Um, <laughs> I think, I mean, I think that I felt this kind of very wholesome, I had this very wholesome experience of being safe in my own mind. Hmm. Interesting. Like not needing to, it was like, uh, it was almost like, it, yeah, it kind of helped me to kind of see kind of these fearful thoughts that were kind of, had been kind of operating in the background and, and, and not like get hooked in by them, but just mm -hmm. to kind of like be able to kind of witness them and, And just, yeah, this deep kind of, I would say, deep peace uh, uh, and a, a kind of spaciousness and vastness of, of, of consciousness. You know, I, um, you know, I think psychedelics and ketamine particularly are like great tools for exploring consciousness. Totally. Um, and, you know, ketamine is anesthetic, so it numbs the body and it kind of takes the body offline. Hmm. And when the body's taken offline, who are you? Oh, interesting. You know, you're not a body. You're not, you're not, your experience isn't informed by information coming through the five senses. Right. And so who are you? And, you know, you're still, you know, under, under the influence of ketamine, you're still alert. Um, but you're alert, not in a hypervigilant way, but in a more like, uh, yeah, just a more, I would say, meditative way. You're, you're you're awake, you're aware, you're not kind of drugged out and things are kind of blurry and confusing. Right. Uh, I mean, sometimes it can, it can look like that or it can feel like that, but uh, I'd say the essence of the ketamine experience is like actually clarity and um, yeah, understanding yourself and, 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 and what consciousness is beyond right. the body. Yeah. Um, there's this separation that we live with every day. And I, Think that we could argue we don't have it when we sleep but this separation between our body and our environment and like when that disappears there's no boundary between you know our body and our environment like that's sort of like living in this state of consciousness that doesn't yeah. have a boundary exactly exactly it dissolves boundaries um and 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 between self and environment and also self and others right that's interesting to think about too and how you know, the separation between ourselves and others is almost self-created mm, mm. in a sense where, you know, our perception of our separation has to do with the fact that we are constrained by our own bodies. But when you take that away, there isn't anything separating us between, you know, me and you or me and my dog or whoever, or even like, you know, the table in the room. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, which is profound. Yeah, totally. And it's like very challenging to experience that throughout the normal course of your day because we have to function in this society. And if you, if, if we like lived, you know, our days like that, it, it wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to function in this society that we live in. Yeah. I think that was something that, you know, Aldous Huxley uh, talked about endorse a perception at one point in the, book he's you know he's uh under the influence of mescaline and um just really appreciating the beauty of things and the the intricacy and the the patterns and and then at some point he kind of says 
you know, there's a, there's a passage where he kind of imagines himself, you know, in the future, like, could I, could I function in the world in this state of consciousness? Could I go about and do things? And he kind of just, you know, concluded that he wouldn't be able to, Right. (laughs) (laughs) that, that, you know, this is a special state of consciousness that really needs to be kind of held in a, in a particular way under certain specific conditions. Um, and that, you know, it's not something that it's not, it's not going to, it's not going to necessarily, you know, it's, it's not going to make you more productive in the moment (laughs) under the influence, but it can inform how you live your life after. For sure. Yeah. Can you walk me through what it would be like as one of your patients coming in to, to do one of these sessions or, I don't know if it's like a series of sessions, but I'm just curious what that process is like. Yeah. Great question. So yeah, we, um, you know, we're a, uh, integrative clinic. So we have uh, medical professionals, uh, physicians, psychiatrists on staff. We have nurses on staff and we have, um, psychologists, psychotherapists on staff. And, you know, we really approach the work from a collaborative team, uh, approach where we, um, you know, we do a kind of, um, you know, multidisciplinary assessment of, uh, someone's candidacy for the, for the treatment. Uh, we do, you know, an assessment, uh, we do, you know, sc- an initial screening to make right. sure that they, um, you know, uh, there are no kind of red flags. So, you know, what we're an outpatient clinic. So we, yeah. What would be um, an example of a red flag? Yeah, like let's say someone's, you know, actively using substances or alcohol in excess um, and is kind of struggling with addiction. Um, There have been studies on treating addiction with ketamine with good results. Mm -hmm. Uh, Eli Kolb and uh, Evgeny Krupitsky are two Russian psychiatrists that come to mind who have been who have done studies in this area. But um and so, you know, there's a lot of potential and, and promise there, I think, but um, we don't specialize in that area. And so I think, you know, we don't really have the capacity to, to, to treat someone with, um, with those, with that um, kind of dual diagnosis mm-hmm. problem. Uh, so uh, we would probably refer uh, those people out. Um, also, during COVID, uh, we are kind of become a little bit stricter with the criteria, just because there's um, we're doing more online sessions, doing more remote sessions, and uh, you know, there's less. Um, we have a little less control yeah, uh, over the the treatment in that way. Yeah, so environment, right, right. Um, you know, someone that has, uh, you know, history of psychosis, a recent history of mania, someone who's actively suicidal and really at ri- you know higher risk, right. uh, we, we might refer those people out to other services. Mm-hmm. There's a screening process that we go through. And then, you know, a lot of people come f- with treatment resistant depression. They've tried psychotherapy. They've tried SSRIs. Um they've gotten maybe some benefit from that, but the, the, the depression is intransigent and um, ongoing and, and they're looking for new, new um, treatments. Mm -hmm. And so people come with uh, anxiety and uh, trauma as well. And we, we treat these people um, with, with the ketamine and there's, there's a lot of evidence and and studies out for treating depression with ketamine. Yeah. uh, But uh, there's less, with anxiety and trauma, but that's uh, an emerging field that is, um, is really an exciting, um, yeah, there's some exciting uh, new studies coming out kind of uh, supporting the use of, of ketamine with these um, c- conditions. That's incredible. Do you, yeah. how is it administered? Is it through an IV? Yeah. So, well, no, we don't use IVs. We use IM, intramuscular injection, okay, um, and which is a medical procedure and, and pro- uh, provided by uh, our nursing staff uh, under the supervision of our physicians, right, um, or or by a physician who's on site. Um, and then we, um, and you know, the physician prescribes the medicine, right. Uh, and then you know, the, but the therapist is 
really with the, the patient for the entire three hour, uh, the course of the three hour session. And is and the patient like laying down or? So we, we have a, a, a nice clinic in, in the Castro district in San Francisco. And it's, it's also where we provide the MDMA assisted psychotherapy for the MAP study. Oh, very cool. Um, so it's, uh, you know, a living room like environment, very comfortable. We have the bed set up or, or the futon set up with, you know, fresh linens and pillows. And, uh, we have nice, you know, paintings on the wall that are kind of calming and uh, peaceful and kind of, um, yeah, we have, we have music, uh, special music playlists that we use for our sessions. Um, and we, you know, we, we, after, after the assessment period and, and intake, we uh, would meet for a preparation session where we talk about, you know, set and setting factors. What's, what's the best orientation going into a, a psychedelic experience? Um, you know, how, how can you kind of optimize and make the most of it? Um, you know, intention is important, talking about you know, what someone's goals are for their, their life, what Mm -hmm. struggles are going through. They'd like to get clarity on, um, and, you know, kind of, um, letting that kind of be a kind of general guide for, for the patient, um, uh, and coming back to that throughout the treatment, their intention, but, uh, but also, you know, like we were saying earlier, there's also an importance of kind of, be, you know, just before the session, really kind of letting go of those intentions and expectations and goals and, and just being open to the right. experience itself. Like trusting. And so holding the intention lightly, we talk about, we talk about that. We talk about, you know, letting go of expectations. Um, you know, so it's kind of like priming people, with like education and uh, you know tips and techniques to kind of really be able to be in a good place uh, on the day of the experiential session. And we talk about integration, the importance of following up afterwards and really doing work around making meaning about the material that's coming up, uh, understanding the images and the, the visions that that can happen and the meaning behind that and how to apply that to your daily life. Um, Talk to the patient during the session and ask questions and sort of, you know, understand what they're seeing in real time. Partially, Um, you know, it's, um, it, it really depends on, it depends on the patient and kind of how they respond to the medicine. It also depends on dosing. Right. So the, the lower doses of ketamine can can sometimes look like a like a like a, a low dose MDMA session almost. Even though you know with ketamine it's it's about a one to two hour experience, whereas with MDMA it's you know six six to eight hours. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the effects of low dose ketamine uh, it lowers defenses, it kind of lowers inhibitions. It increases, um, you, typically it increases empathy hmm. um, and a connection with the therapist and allows for the patient to kind of move beyond their, their super ego, you know, that, that, that self-critical part of them and oh. to be able to just you kind of share and express whatever's coming up. And, and so um, oftentimes, you know, at low doses, we're talking and processing throughout the session. Um, with the higher doses, uh, so the lower dose sessions, we call psycholytic sessions, the higher dose sessions, we call psychedelic sessions. And with the higher doses, um, they're often less engaging with the therapist and they're more internal. Oh, interesting. And, uh, going within with the the help of the eye shades and the music Mm. and having a kind of deep intimate experience of their inner world. And, you know, they may kind of, you know, sigh and say, you know, like, Oh my gosh, wow. And like, you know, Oh, that, you know, there's this blue castle and these pink clouds. 
And so, you know, but they, they may, they may be kind of fragments of thoughts or, you know, uh, experiences that they kind of voice during the session, but it's often not in dial in a kind of discursive dialogue with a therapist. Yeah, that makes sense. Has there been a session, like, is there a session that comes to your mind that really surprised you or impacted you or moved you? Yeah. Um, many, 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 (laughs) (laughs) you know, I feel, uh, just yeah, the power of this work and 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 the the places that people are able to go in their own psyche and, and maybe in the the collective uh, unconscious and um, you know yeah I mean people have experiences of you know floating back to their childhood and like recalling a memory that they had forgotten you know, uh, sitting on their grandmother's lap at the, at the lake house, um, feeling her love and just feeling so at, at ease and at peace and at one with the world and, you know, coming back from that and, you know, saying like, wow, you know, I had completely forgotten that, that memory and how powerful and impactful that was. Right. You know, and I felt it viscerally. I was there. I could smell her. I could hear her voice. I could feel the love. I could, you know, and uh, so, you know, sometimes it's particularly the lower doses. It's more biographical um, where you're kind of floating back through memories. You're kind of in this reverie state and uh, you have access to to more to to memories um, uh, and a kind of more vast appreciation of your life story. Um, sometimes people re-experience trauma, but, and they're kind of experiencing it, th- but they're experiencing it in a different way through like a witness consciousness. Maybe they're, they're above the trauma looking down and seeing themselves go through it mm. and, you know, you know, feeling compassion for themselves for, for how much pain and suffering they were going through, or, um, maybe feeling, having some forgiveness for the, the, the persecutors or, you know, um, or themselves or for themselves. Right. Yeah. Um, that's really powerful. It's, it's, it's incredibly powerful. Um, sometimes, uh, People travel to, you know, at higher doses, usually they, they, they leave their body and they travel um, to other places. They travel to kind of mythological archetypal wow. places in the collective unconscious. Um, you know, they um, people have mystical experiences. Um, people have uh, near-death experiences sometimes. Um, Where they know. visualize themselves almost dying or they feel like they've died sometimes it you know it kind of both like sometimes it can be that uh they there's a whole kind of visionary component where they kind of see themselves dying Mm -hmm. um and other times it's more of like a the ego is is you know finally kind of letting go and uh and it's you know there's often you know, sometimes there's like a struggle there, as you might imagine, like, you know, what if I totally let go? Am I going to die? Am I going to go crazy? And, you know, uh, deep, deep primal fears come up around, you know, this, this experience of full surrender. Right. And those are all, you know, ego-based fears. It's like this, the therapy is threatening to the ego. So it makes sense that there would be some resistance toward it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, And, you know, we talk about this in the prep session and um, how, you know, these experiences can come up and really, um, yeah, it's natural for the ego to resist. And so there's, there's, you know, there, there can be some fear there and uh, struggle and resistance. And as much as possible, if you can be trust that you will come back to your normal state of consciousness. You know, I've never sat with anyone who's not come back to their, their normal consciousness after two or three hours. Right. (laughs) Um, Trusting that, trusting 
you know, trusting the medicine, trusting the container that we've created and trusting their own inner healing intelligence that, you know, whatever's coming up here is coming up for a reason. It's coming up for healing. And as much as possible, if you can allow, permit, uh, trust and be open and be curious, you, you will move through that into, into clarity or into, uh, you know, it, it, you're not going to get stuck there, right. you know, but if you fight it and resist it, uh, you still won't get stuck there, but it's going to be, it's going to be a lot more challenging. Right. You're going to move through. And I would imagine some of the patients who you're working with who have such severe depression and anxiety, that part is the hardest, like trusting themselves. Because, That's right. Yeah. I mean, I, I even remember like when I was in high school and going through my own battles with depression and anxiety, and I would feel like if I expressed my emotion, it would just, I would always feel that way. Or I would, if I was angry and I expressed the anger, like it would just never stop. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So then once you learn that not only emotions are fleeting and they come in, you know, a wave, a wave, but you trust that eventually you will come out of it. I mean, that exercise in and of itself is really powerful. I, I love how you described that and articulated that. That's, that's so, there's such a deep truth to that. And um, yeah, if we can kind of be less attached to our emotions and, totally. and, and see them as valid, you know, your anger is valid. Your shame is valid. Your, right. your fear is valid. The, you know, life is not easy for anyone. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, I don't care how much money you have, you, you know, there we're, we're all fighting these, you know, internal battles and yeah. we all struggle with uh, difficult emotions, which is, you know, part of uh, being human being and being incarnate in this body. Totally. It's and and so, part. yeah. And how do you, I mean, you hold a lot of space for people and I could imagine that like doing that day after day would be really hard. So how, how do you protect your own energy? <sighs> yeah. Great question. Um, and I love to sigh before, before the answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just taking a deep breath helps, um, you know, kind of connecting with breath. Um, you know, when I'm in a, when I'm like, you know, in an optimal flow in my life, I'm doing, uh, some kind of mindfulness practice, meditation, or yoga on a regular basis. Um, that is like home base, you know, it kind yeah. of is a way to kind of like let go, come down into the body, come down into the heart, out of the head, mm -hmm. and just be present and, and, and just enjoy being in the body, noticing pain, tightness, tension, noticing emotions coming up without, you know, without kind of spiraling into, you know, those, those eddies of consciousness that our thoughts can take us into. Right. Totally. Um, and like creating that separation between yourself and your emotions, like you are not your emotions. Right. Right. This is just, you know, this is just the phenomena arising, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, it's, it rises and falls away, it rises, falls away. Right. Um, you know, like you were describing with the the, 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 the kind of flow of emotions. Yeah, it's just emotions, thoughts, sensations. They're all kind of phenomena that are, are, are transient. And so, um, you know, don't give too much power to any one thought, belief or, you know, it's just they they're like clouds in the sky floating, mm. floating through and. Um, so that, that grounds me and centers me. Um, I have a, a special relationship with music. So I, I, uh, I, on a, you know, in a good, when I'm in a good place, I'm listening to a lot of music, uh, all, like as a practice, you know, yeah. as a practice of like entering into a more receptive state, tuning in, um, letting the music move me, letting the music tell, tell its story mm -hmm. and appreciating beauty. Um, you know, I think one component of the psychedelic experience and this work is reminding people that they have a deep capacity to appreciate beauty. 
Right. And sometimes that's through just appreciating the, the beauty and the, 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 the complexity and the, and the vastness of their inner world. Um, sometimes it's through appreciating the, the beauty of music and sound, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, or like their keep, environment and their environment, the beauty of, yeah, of, of relationships of, uh, you know, nature. So, yeah. So, um, but music, music has been a real um, kind of central source of inspiration. Do you play and music? I don't play music. Um, yeah, I tried playing the sax- saxophone at one point, uh, oh, but I that didn't stick. <laughs> what kind do you listen to? Um, I love um, I love uh, trance music. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, um, emotional trance. Uh, you know, some of my favorite. Um, artists are like, you know, uh, Armin Van Buren, um, Matt Zoe, um, uh, you know, Ali and Fila, mm-hmm. um, Artie, you know, these guys are, you know, uh, Alex Morph. These guys are like, um, I, I think that trance music is like the next level of, of music. I'm, I'm, um, I, I love, uh, I love all music, but like trance is, is where my heart is. Like, like that's put you in a step in a different state almost that, you know, music is a powerful for me is a, a powerful psychedelic in itself. Totally. I mean, it, it, it really reliably helps me to connect with my emotions, helps me to connect with, um, uh, appreciating beauty and helps me to cl- connect with bliss. Right. Um, I did a sound bath last summer before I started this podcast and it was just virtual. So I was in my room and I had headphones on. It was through my computer, but someone was playing, you know, just the different like singing bowls and different instruments. Mm. And I came up with a name for the podcast (laughs) while listening to it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was really powerful. And I had this experience of, it was almost like vertigo, which, Mm. which ordinarily would not have felt great, but I tried to just like trust the experience and to view it from like, Oh, this is interesting rather Mm -hmm. than like, why am I so dizzy right now? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. then I came up with this name undefined for this podcast. And I remember I was just repeating it over and over in my head because I was so afraid I would forget it. (laughs) Wow. Powerful. Yeah. Very. What a great, yeah, what a great uh, kind of encapsulation of that experience. Totally. Yeah, it was like, you know, it took me into another state of mind, but it opened my mind up to be able to be more creative in my thought. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, that that's kind of what happens. And you have to kind of go through this process of letting go of what you think that you want. Right, <laughs> totally. And yeah. then, yeah, you're, you're surprised by, oh. Yeah, there's all of these other perspectives and ways of seeing things, and definitely, yeah, because often our our minds, like we structure things and we structure our thoughts throughout the day, that it limits our thinking. We put ourselves in this box. Yes, yes. Um, this was amazing. We're almost at an hour. I have some ending quick fire questions that I ask everybody. Um, if you're if you're open to them, it's sort of just like the first thing that pops into your mind? Sure. Okay. So the first one is what book are you reading right now? You know, that's a, <laughs> that's a good question. I'm ashamed to say that I, I'm not reading a book right Ooh, now. That's exciting though. That means <laughs> and you, the world is your oyster right now. I, I'm, I'm, yeah, there's a story behind that, that I, I won't get into, but basically I had to give up I used to collect books. I had a huge (laughs) library. I carried it with me everywhere I went and I had to give it all up. I had a mold problem in my apartment. Oh my God. Wow. So after that, I've been kind of like, yeah, something shifted for me and I haven't been reading uh, very much. Do you, you read articles or listen to podcasts? I do. Yeah. I do read articles. I listen to podcasts. I read, you know, excerpts from books and yeah, um, yeah I'm, I'm kind of, yeah, studying and, and, and learning constantly. Right. Um, What's one that, that comes to your mind that you recently read that impacted you or listened to? 
Yeah, there's, um, you know, the, the ketamine p- papers by Phil Wolfson um, is a great book. And um, there's a chapter in there by a, psycho- a psychiatrist named Eli Culp. And, you know, it's, you know, it's about his work with ketamine assisted psychotherapy and the ways in which he kind of set the treatment up in a good way to kind of uh, really optimize outcome and um, his interest in non-ordinary states of consciousness, kind of what we've been talking about today. But that, that, that was kind of the um, most recent thing that I read that was like really inspiring. Awesome. Um, This one is, is less, um, I guess you could say less like inspirational, but maybe it, maybe it will be very inspirational. What was the last meal you had? (laughs) And I know it's morning right now. Yeah. Well, the last meal I had was, uh, yeah, I didn't eat this morning. So it was last night. I, I made some pasta with some, uh, vegan, uh, sausage. (laughs) Are you vegan? I'm sorry. Are you vegan? I'm not, I'm an aspiring vegan. Yeah. That's sort of, you know, I've been vegetarian for, um, for a long time. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm trying to give up all animal products. That's awesome. When you imagine your quote unquote happy place, where is it? It's on the North shore of Oahu. Uh, yeah. Uh, Haleiwa, this little town, little surf town. Uh, yeah, there on the beach. Uh, that's my happy place. That's awesome. If you could speak to yourself 15 years ago with the knowledge you have now, what would you say? I just got chills throughout my body. Have faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, trust that you are moving towards your destiny. And, 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 and don't sweat the small stuff. Just just keep going and, and have faith and have hope and focus on the positive and, and, and trust that you're, you will, you will kind of move and realize your destiny and that there's help along the way. You're not alone. I love that. I'm going to like take that sound bite and that could be my like morning mantra. Cause that's exactly what I needed to hear. Cool. Great. Um, (laughs) And then the last one. So since this podcast is called undefined and it's all about, you know, like shedding the definitions that society makes us all believe we need to subscribe to, what definitions do you feel are true to you and not ones that you attach yourself to just because society says you should? definitions like um values yeah however you want to interpret it yeah i I just i really um i think you know open-mindedness is is a real uh deep deeply held value of mine um being open to uh new perspectives new experiences um dialogue um being open to being wrong about things, <laughs> uh, you know, no one has the full picture. We, 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 we need each other to kind of fill in the gaps and to, to understand, to get closer to the truth. Um, curiosity and, uh, self-compassion. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. This was just an absolutely fascinating conversation. And I know the last time we talked, I said I could ask you a million more questions. So I was glad that I got the chance to ask you some more that I was thinking about. Yeah, Marissa, it's been really a pleasure and yeah, really great questions. I appreciate your curiosity um, with me and with this field. And yeah, I would love to, to, yeah, continue to have conversations. And, you know, I feel, yeah. There's a lot more to talk about, uh, yeah. you know, the future of psychedelics. What's, what is that going to look like? I you know. know it's endless. It's endless. <laughs> I hope that you enjoyed that interview. I am very happy that you've listened. Please let me know what you think. And as you know, I am off of social media, at least off of Instagram and Facebook. So I started a newsletter and if you haven't signed up, please do so. You can sign up on the podcast website, undefinedpodcast.com. And I definitely won't spam your inbox. There won't be too many emails coming, really just whatever I publish new episodes 
just to let everybody know. And if you are already a subscriber, please forward and tell all of your friends because this is my only way of getting this podcast out into the world. So thank you again for listening. Subscribe, rate, review, all of the things, and I will talk to you next time.